Hello, and welcome to Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. A series of conversations with innovative educators at colleges and universities across the country and around the world. This podcast is produced by faculty and staff in the Center for the Advancement of Teaching and Faculty Development at Xavier University of Louisiana. And now, let's talk about teaching, learning, and everything else. And I'll say greetings. My name is Bart Everson, a creative generalist uh, for faculty development here at the Center for the Advancement of Teaching and Faculty Development. This is a a panel we've brought together uh, in sponsorship with the Earth-Centered Special Interest Group of the POD Network. And we're recording today for our podcast, Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. So I'm gonna begin with just a few remarks to try to contextualize the conversation we're about to have. You know, we've all seen the news, we've read the headlines, and increasingly uh, many of us are living the headlines. For example, I'm coming to you from Southeast Louisiana where we've just weathered another major storm, Hurricane Ida, which intensified rapidly. Some people were startled by how fast it got so strong. And that's because the waters of the Gulf of Mexico are warmer than ever. And of course, that's because the planetary climate is warming. And that, of course, is because of air pollution, which of course is because of Western style industry. So there's a lot of uh, chain of cause and effects there. Scientists tell us that we've passed numerous irreversible tipping points, that we're locked into a hotter future with everything that entails. Uh, We can expect hurricanes to intensify more rapidly and many other things. And that's just one of the transitions that humanity is facing. It seems likely that these crises, as they deepen, will also further exacerbate the deep divisions and disparities in our society. And even some of the uh, proposed solutions that have been put forward have the potential to be divisive, to be manifestly unjust, and thus we are especially proactive and intentional. So, uh, you know, one question I find myself asking almost every day has been, what are we doing about it? What are we doing, Uh, particularly in higher education, because that's where I work. What are we doing to prepare our students for, for these realities, even as they keep shifting? Can we mount a response, a proactive response for justice through our teaching? That is a, a tall order. And certainly I don't have the answers, but that's why I've invited a few colleagues to be on this panel today. So thank you so much for being here. And in all candor, of course, we don't expect that any one person or even a panel will have all the answers. But I know that our three guests today have been thinking about these issues, kind of negotiating their way through the many questions they raise. So I wanted to start off by asking just a very general question. Namely, uh, what transitions are you particularly looking at in your research and your your teaching? And and how does justice factor into that? So I'll introduce each of you in turn and ask you to uh, confine your answers to just a few minutes. And hopefully we'll have some time uh, left over at the end for some discussion, some Q&A with our uh, people who are in attendance here. So I I recognize this is a huge topic, so please uh, try to keep your answers uh, abbreviated. Uh, So I'm just going in alphabetical order. Brannon Anderson came to Furman University in 1994 after uh, completing his PhD at Syracuse University, where he was also a senior geochemist studying leachate mitigation as part of the closure of the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island. He's trained in geology, but he's kind of morphed into an environmental scientist with a focus on biogeochemistry and uh, sustainability science. 
He's co-authored a lot of abstracts with undergraduate students. He's published uh, a lot of journal articles and book chapters, close to 30 at last count, I think, and has been awarded over 2 million in external grants. So thank you uh, for being with us and please give us uh, your answer to what transitions you're looking at and the justice factor. Uh, thanks, Bart. Um, yeah, this is sort of new. I was a geologist. You know, I was trained hardcore geology, uh, but my master's thesis worked in the ocean and that got me interested in the environmental end of things and you begin to see human impact. Um, I was hired at, at Furman to teach environmental science and the deeper you get into that, the more you begin to realize you need to have some solutions to the problems. I mean, we're very good at analyzing the problems as scientists. The, the solutions are not scientific. The solutions are social, political, um, and economic. And that got me into sustainability science. Um, and so now I'm kind of going back and forth between being hardcore by geochemistry and, and working on um, city and national level indicators of sustainability. Um, with my colleagues here in, in Croatia. Um, and that, you know, when you begin to look at the problem from a systems perspective, um, and, and I think Jason Hickel in his book, Less is More, does a beautiful job of this, of understanding how we ended up with a neoliberal capitalism and how that drives a lot of the inequity and the environmental degradation. And, and Jen Hinton did a great um, piece of work in a paper titled Fit for Purpose, where she does a a causal loop diagram of um, basically neoliberal capitalism and shows how that leads to the accumulation of wealth and power and, and injustice that comes from that. And so what I've been doing lately is trying to figure out, you know, is there first analyzing that from a, a systems perspective, but then also trying to figure out what are the possible solutions to that. And as I mentioned with you before, I, I read a, a uh, pamphlet um, called The Just Transition. And uh, that's been really profound. It, it's a difficult read for a white male who's 59 years old um, because it makes you question a lot of things that you were told when you're growing up and so on. Um, and, I, and I give it to my students because at Furman, you know, that's, that's, that's basically wealthy kids that come to a place like Furman and they're products of that system. So trying to understand alternatives to neoliberal capitalism and, and to state socialism, which is just capitalism with all the wealth and power going to the state, um, and how that, how that relates to, to people um, and well, injustice in the system, particularly racial injustice in the West, um, but also economic injustice and, and imperialism on the global scale and so on. So there's numerous scales involved in that from the, from the local to the global. So, um, so it's a, it's a, I don't have any answers, <laughs> but it's been, it's a, it's a real exploration and, and transformation for me at least, and hopefully for my students. Thank you. And I should have mentioned to the benefit of our listeners that you're coming to us from Croatia. So this is giving a little, a little more global flavor to our conversation today. Uh, I wanted to uh, introduce our next panelist, Jacob Park. He's an associate professor in Castleton University's College of Business. Uh, that's in Vermont. Who, uh, and he specializes in uh, social and environmental dimensions of innovation entrepreneurship and international business, especially focusing on emerging and developing economies in Africa and Asia Pacific, Caribbean islands. He's also a visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa and has served as the coordinating lead author of the UN's GEO6 report, lead author for the UN Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Initiative, and as an expert reviewer for a number of reports for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC that we've been hearing uh, more from recently. So uh, thank you for being with us today. And uh, if you could tell us what transitions you're looking at and uh, 
you know, sure. the, the, as they relate to justice right. as well. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, panelists. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, you're coming Super. through loud and clear. Super. So I, my sort of focus, as, as uh, Bart was saying, is looking at sort of the connection between of innovation, entrepreneurship, and sustainability management. Um, this has been a focus for almost two decades. And I think that where I kind of land on is looking at the transition issues from what I would, what I would call market-based transformation innovation. Now, how does it differ from kind of like some of the neoliberal critiques that uh, uh, we just, you just heard? They're, they're actually very similar, but but way I interpret, a way I kind of, sort of problematize the problem is slightly different than the, perhaps, uh, uh, I'm blanking out on what Brandon was saying. So I, I sort of share the concerns of this kind of, that the neoliberal sort of critiques been, been done by many scholars who've been working on this issue. But where I come at it is that I think they need to truly achieve transition in the way we think about it, that you cannot possibly not include the market in fact, I would argue that policy and market needs to come together. Now you could argue as who, who takes the lead uh, and that's on a case by case basis. But broadly speaking, uh, my sort of research really looks at how can we achieve sort of the social environmental dimensions of transition as we broadly defined through kind of market transformation innovation. So as an example, uh, it's been quite a bit of time in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, and um, even things like, you know, how does a new kind of mobile payment app uh, system that is started in Kenya called M-Pesa, which is Swahili for just for money, that, you know, how does that change things around? Now, certainly that is, it was never just purely market, right? So anything that is truly transformative, the way I define it, it cuts across sort of market policy, government, public, public, private as such. So the, the idea is how can we achieve and it's really more of a question than, than, than st stating a fact, that how can we use the market to drive positive social environmental change? That's the, a premise. Again, you, you could argue it's on, under what circumstances can that can be done. And where I kind of include the justice piece of it is I've always sort of front and center, uh, always kind of put racial equity uh, gender equity at the forefront in terms of what I would call market transformation. So that's not an add-on. That's not simply a problem to be solved later on. I put, when I say market transformation, I put gender racial dimensions in, in, the, in the context of, the, you know, U.S. obviously will look different than the Sub-Saharan Africa um, and Asia as well, where it's done a lot, quite a bit of work. So I look at those kind of, what are the inclusion, sort of in inclusive innovation that we need to have as a part of the market transformation. Uh, and I think that where I kind of doing the most recent kind of work is looking at in terms of how we could use finance and investment to really accelerate. So I think that it's good to sort of argue for either could be for or against market transformation, but ultimately if you want the kind of market transformation or transformation in general that we're looking for, that we need to have a much more sustainable financial uh, equitable system. And that's one of the areas that I'm working on right now uh, and through my, I just recently joined a steering committee member of the World Conservation Union, where I'm going to hope to start a new program on regenerative finance. So that's like a whole different area where I'm still continuing to do my work and, and trying to link more explicitly market transformation with more traditional justice concerns like gender, uh, even child labor, which is a subject of a paper I'm working on right now. So I'll just end there. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, your perspective, and I'm uh, going to introduce our third panelist, Pamela Waldron Moore, a professor of political science at a great university, Xavier University of Louisiana, <laughs> where she has taught since 1998. She, uh, she holds a PhD in political science, specialization in comparative politics and international relations. So her teaching and, and research expertise really lies in exploration of themes related to the political economy of development and, and industrialized democracies, as well as international political economy, international law and politics, gender inequality, uh, climate justice, knowledge economics, democratization, 
global citizenship and African feminisms. And uh, Pamela, welcome. Welcome to the panel. Uh, please uh, tell us what transitions you're looking at uh, and, and how that relates to issues of justice. And, and you're on mute. You're going to need to unmute your microphone. Thank you so much. Yes, I am um, looking at similar transitions um, to Jacob and Brannan. I am focusing on behavior. I'm focused on behavior in terms of the fact that most of our climate change policies um, have a lot to do with how people behave. I am particularly looking at knowledge economies right now, arguing that knowledge production might be an alternative to just focusing on purely technological developments and how knowledge production might bring into, into fore the idea of development, sustainable development, especially in the developing world. The African diaspora is one of the areas that I'm, I'm writing on now. Um, and thinking about um, ways in which we can move from extractive um, economic systems, just as um, Jacob mentioned, um, to more regenerative types of ecosystems. And to do that, we need people to have an equilibrium across the globe in terms of how we understand change, why change needs to develop and how we might find ways to pursue it. Um, so one of the things I think about is the fact that human behavior has been the cause of um, the climate change. It is how we use our resources, how we develop ideas for marketing and, and leadership and so forth. And one of the things that um, Jacob just uh, mentioned, he talked about how um, some need to lead um, in terms of market change and so forth. I am looking to suggest that we find more better ways to knowledge share so that there are no leaders and followers because that has been the pattern of the past. That is what the whole liberal, neoliberal economic structure is all about. It's about who can produce best. It started off with the ideas of comparative advantage. Well, if you can produce something, you take full control of it. And then we found that that wasn't working well because some groups were still getting left out. And, and precisely how to incorporate the whole idea of equity into this it is always going to be um, unequal if they're leaders and followers. And so the idea of getting rid of those who have led, but developing ways for um, the developing world, certainly, to come up with knowledge sharing ways that can allow them to be more innovative in their practices, to deal with things on scale, place-based solutions, rather than simply saying, okay, this is what the West has done, <clears throat> This is what the industrialized world has done. The only way for us to, to stay in this world equally is for us to try to keep up with that, that leadership. And that is what has caused the, the basic destruction because the more we extract, the more the developed world extracts from the, where the resources are, which usually um, are in the developing world, um, South Africa, I think it was who Brennan or, or Jacob in, in Johannesburg, um, we recognize that those areas where the raw materials abound, without the, the knowledge sharing capacities, without the technological capacities, they have to rely on the developed world. And that breaks down the ability for there to be a just transition. So the transition I'm looking at is moving completely from just putting in technological ways to extract from the weaker um, groups where the resources are and get to the point where we are sharing knowledge to the extent that we can start to create the kind of equilibrium we need to see between those who have and those who can produce um, better. And in terms of teaching um, such transitions, well, we have a, a number of ways that we can teach them because this is clearly um, an interdisciplinary area of knowledge. So if we think of it thematically, I think we need to understand history from a new perspective, understanding the past, the present and the future and see what has propelled us in the past to get where we are now and what we might need to tweak and adapt to get to where we want to be um, sustainably. 
Um, we also want to look at the, the old philosophies, the old thinking. Political science is replete with, with theories of morality and equality and justice for all. And while we see those in recommendations for the kind of leadership, the kind of power structures we need, the democratic principles and so forth, we recognize the democratic principles benefit some, but they certainly don't benefit everyone. And that what is perceived as equal from the perspective of democracy, we see smaller societies changing leaders every day because the promise that you make to get into office are seldom the promises you can keep. Not that you want to, you might want to keep those promises, but the world is structured in such a way, in a globalized way, so that you have to look and see what is beneficial to people. So trying to um, uh, figure out ways to teach um, innovation, entrepreneurship, different changes that might be made so that you're not just relying on the old guard but you're seeing neoliberalism, not from an economic exploitation level, but from an economic sharing, knowledge sharing and development um, perspective. So I can stop there and talk about specific ways in which teaching is the answer to our questions, because one of the things we need to change almost immediately, I think, is the way we look at curriculum, the way we look at education, because the most important aspect of this development I'm thinking of is access to information. And if you have information, it means you need to be able to, to have um, journals easily available. We need to have experts coming like this and talking to groups and so forth, not just from you know, mentioning things, but from actually engaging students in the conversation we need to have about um, justice and climate change. So I'll stop right there. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and you uh, provided an excellent segue for me. I do have one round of uh, questions more for our panelists here. Uh, and, and I did want to, since we have a small audience, uh, give a chance for some a question and answer. So just to get the rest of the audience thinking, uh, if you have a uh, question uh, after this next round, We'll open it up and, and uh, I'll, I'll ask you to use the feature of raising your hand in this Zoom meeting. And I will um, be able to call on you. If you prefer not to speak, uh, you could just type that question into the chat. So either way, whatever, whatever works for you, uh, you can be thinking about that as we uh, continue with this, this next round of questions. Uh, and basically my next question is, is even uh, simpler, having, having uh, had all of you sketch out a, a kind of some, some really big picture, big issue stuff that you investigate and are interested in uh, and have learned about yourself. The question I have is, is how do you teach students about that? How do you particularly engage uh, with the teaching and learning process with your own students to try to advance uh, knowledge uh, on that particular issues that you're engaging in. So uh, we'll just go around once more and I'll ask Brandon Anderson to go first and uh, uh, give, us, uh, give us your best uh, take on, on the teaching part of this. Um, yeah, so from, a, from I, I do a lot of systems work. So from a systems perspective, uh, the system goal determines the system behavior. And, you know, the current, current economic system and actually political system that supports it is effectively growth. And you can look at the data. I mean, globally, um, uh, Pam was talking about extractivism. You can look at the extraction of minerals as exponential growth right now. And so long as we, you know, the only goal is growth, grow we will, you extract it, that, um, that leads to injustice. Um, John Martinez Allier has a beautiful website called the EJ Atlas, um, the Environmental Justice Atlas that catalogs um, environmental conflict. And I use that in my teaching um, to remind students that, you know, we have a sustainability science degree program. We're like, oh, let's just, you know, convert everything to uh, renewable energy. And, and my point to them is that there's a consequence to that, right? So if we expect to uh, just grow like we're growing now in the U.S. three percent growth per year. 
and then we're going to transition to renewables, well, that requires a lot of mineral resources. And so, for example, um, you would need by 2050, five times the 2010 world production in concrete just for renewable, re renewable energy systems. Plus then you have all the concrete you have to make for buildings and infrastructure and roads and whatnot. So um, when you begin to look at the numbers like that, that's, that's really not possible. Uh, where the, the destruction on the planet at that scale would be enormous and we're already over you know, most of the planetary boundaries. We've met none of the global um, social foundations massive inequity. Um, so the system itself needs to change. And so if I can get them to that point, which is often like pulling teeth, because um, you have to begin to question the system you live in. And, and we've been, you know, the, the old saying of it's, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Getting them to think about alternatives is the key. And so um, I do that in a number of ways. So we compare, we look at degrowth as, a, as an example. We look at eco-swage, we look at Buenavivir, we look at you know, the different ways of looking at um, this problem from around the world. And then also use, I use the Next System Project quite a bit to get them to think about alternatives to, to this particular way. So what is, what is economic democracy? What does it entail? What are worker co-ops? Does, does that work? And not always, but it's an alternative. Um, public ownership of utilities um, to generate equity rather than profit. Not-for-profit business economy um, is an example that Jen Hinton came up with, which was really interesting. So we, we look at these and I have them actually designed for Greenville. Um, what would a sustainable Greenville look like? And they have to come at it from... Um, from justice perspectives, they got to come at it from economic perspectives and political perspectives, business perspectives. And I think, you know, the goal is not to have them come up with some answer because that, that's very difficult in a, in a one-term class, but to get them to begin to think that A, there's alternatives and B, we can do it better and B, the current system we have doesn't serve people very well. And, and that has been it's an eye-opener for the students. It's eye-opening for me to watch them go through this process um, and, and begin to realize that, um, that the only way to really change this is get deeply involved. My I use my colleagues in Croatia as an example. They got frustrated. Uh, they started a political party called Zagreb Yanash, which is Zagreb is yours. They now are the, um, Thomas Lov is the mayor, Dan Daniela is the vice mayor of Zagreb. They're running the city council and they've uh, made huge gains at the national level uh, with Mojimo, which it means we can. And it's, and it's based on a um, sustainability platform. Um, so, so telling the students, if you want to change, you have to quite literally be the change, I think is, is um, and, and again, we look at like what Pam was saying, the just transition uh, we read the Just Transition pamphlet in all my classes um, because that gets into uh, the history of racial injustice in, in this country and, and what that means for them. And that's, again, that's uncomfortable reading for a lot of us. It is for me. I mean, it's, it's an eye-opener. And, and when I can get guest speakers to come and talk about that, I do because that's, you know, I'm a GM, I'm a scientist, so that's not my area of expertise. But um, in fact, Pam, I'd love to have you talk to my class um, because it's it's the the change that's needed is so deep and so transformative. Um, it's it's almost overwhelming, right? So the to me, the nitpicking around the edges, the the teasing at the little bit, oh, change a light bulb, you know, to have LED, that's not going to do it. Uh, we're, we're facing a massive problem that is crashing down on us starting right now. I and mean, we're seeing this with the, from just climate change, but that's just the beginning. I mean, there, there's all kinds of other issues out there. And, and to have it, this change be just and equitable is, is going to require, you know, to be honest, a massive redistribution of wealth. 
and, and, a, and a decrease of wealth in the wealthiest countries. Because we have to we have to share, not only we have to use less globally, but then we have to share that with people who have the least. And, and that's, you know, so that's my message to the students. It's, you know, trying to get them to think innovatively of how do we do that, I think is, is the, the challenge. Thank you very much for that perspective. Uh, it, it, some of the things that you touched on really are quite um, uh, on the mind of a lot of people in New Orleans right now. We had a situation you know, where we just lost power to the entire city uh, and the, the city council, uh, just uh, the utilities committee, well, they'll be voting today um, whether or not to launch an investigation of re-examining their entire relationship with their the electrical utility that they actually have regulatory authority over. So uh, th these things are happening now for sure. Um, Jacob, Jacob Park, if yeah. you could uh, give us your sure. perspective on the pedagogical piece. Sure. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to just kind of continue the conversation that uh, the Brennan started about growth, I think. I think that I fundamentally agree with what, what he just said about growth. But I think that really the, the core issue that I'm really interested in, I think that we need to sort of really focus on is not whether it's you want growth or not growth, right? You, want, you want, really want to focus on what do you want to grow, right? To use echo what uh, the architect Bill McDonough from University of Virginia would always say, right? So I like to grow health equity. I want to make sure that we want to, I want to combat anti-racism, right? So the, really the question I think there is, is not whether or not do we want traditional economic growth? Answer is no, we don't want that because clearly this hasn't provided the kind of the, the panacea that we all think to do. So traditional economic growth out. So what's going to replace it? I don't really see it as an alternative even. To me, fundamentally, we need to sort of rethink in terms of uh, what even things like extraction be. So, so as an example, um, I certainly think that there's a lot of problem with extraction and, and, and Brendan's absolutely right that in order to kind of sustain the current economic model, you need you know, four or five planets, depending on who you look at. But I think that, but also underneath that, if you really kind of explicitly look at it, uh, in order to achieve this kind of that green, deep transition that we're thinking about, there's simply no way that we're gonna stop kind of, we need to rethink mining in many ways, but it doesn't mean that if you want electric vehicles, uh, that requires continuous supply of lithium, cobalt from Africa, and all those places. That's not going to, to end. So in other words, if we're going to kind of look at extraction as a problem, I think what we need to do is shift their thinking greatly, both in terms of our research and our teaching, in terms of what kind of extraction is going to be allow us to have this kind of green economy that we're looking for, because ultimately, that with the need for things like cobalt uh, in Africa, and which is the subject of a paper which I'm writing, and also in things of lithium in, in the South American lithium, that's not going to impact. In fact, we need that continuously. Rare earth from China, all these pieces, if you want to build a green economy, all of that is going to be necessary ingredients. So extraction is not going to end. So maybe we need to rethink of what kind of extraction do we need to have to do that. And in terms of teaching, uh, explicitly from that vantage point, uh, I really tried to ask the fundamental question, which I think Brendan and, and Pamela has already started to, to, to engage us on, uh, just really looking at a systems level thinking about what we need to be doing. And we're really focusing on things like, what kind of leadership do we need to have? Okay, certainly not the top, traditional top-down leadership. Certainly that's not what I was advocating for. I think that we need to really rethink leadership in a way to be more servant leadership model, which there is plenty of research on. So in terms of what I'm doing now, uh, I'm fairly new to Castleton in a sense. So I still haven't really done as much of the things I would like to do. Uh, we did start this kind of a year long initiative on, uh, on food system as a kind of a focus point through the, our green campus working group. But in terms of teaching, uh, what I try to do is take this kind of the low hanging fruit, which is like, you know, in my lectures, if I have any opportunity to bring in issues about sustainability to my mostly business students, is so a good example of this be there's a section on under what circumstances can government interfere with trade now if you taught it in a very kind of a traditional economic uh, neoliberal sense you will say let's give it some pros and cons no i actually just tossed that and said look what about issues about child labor issues uh regarding chocolate which is 95% of the chocolate that we use, we consume are conventional and that is product of child labor. So 
under what circumstances can we interfere, but kind of reframe the question to do that. Do we want chocolate to be fair trade? So are you willing to pay more? So really confront the students with a question mark, okay? We all do not like child labor. However, 95% of what chocolate we consume is coming from a very unsustainable um, so child labor oriented trade. So what do you think is the right answer for business and consumers as society to, to deal with? So I tried to almost front end the question about, about trade-offs, price, what are you willing to sort of to do? So make sure that they understand that those questions about easy things, I guess I'm against things, but what are you really for? That's a much harder question to answer and make the students confront those issues. Now, if I had, um, and this is kind of the model that I used when I was teaching at Green Mountain College, which was really try to teach these topics because we're not experts in, in all these topics we need to do as, as, as Brendan already pointed out. Uh, team teaching, uh, we did this course on kind of climate change from, from four or five different kind of disciplinary perspective. We call it a block course back then. So we spent a semester uh, really delving deep into floods uh, back in like four or five years ago through a grant from the Environmental Protection Agency. So we spent a whole semester looking at flood risk, flood resiliency uh, in communities in Vermont, which is uh, happy to say that it garnered you know, an award for Environmental Merit Award from the US EPA for that kind of teaching and pedagogy. So I really think that, you know, if I could be more explicit about that, team-based teaching, uh, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, if you want to call it that, uh, but really try to look at tackle global challenges, whether it's climate change, biodiversity and whatnot, looking from multiple uh, disciplinary perspectives. That's gonna require quite a bit of resources and investment. Uh, and I, I like to do it at some point where I'm currently teaching at, but right now I'm just too new and I'm just trying to just figure out the copy code right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you, you mentioned servant leaders and that is uh, something we've definitely, uh, tried to emphasize as a concept on our campus. Uh, but I thank you also for um, reminding us of the, the, the difficulties that we have to confront in, in engaging these issues, uh, that there aren't easy answers. Now, Pamela, I wanted to uh, turn it to you. I know that you have some deep and far ranging ideas about uh, teaching, learning, and everything else. Uh, so if you could give us your, uh, uh, take on, on how you teach uh, with, you'll have the, the last word on, on, on this particular round, how, and we'll hopefully have some time after for a little uh, Q&A with our audience. All right, well, I can make this brief, I hope, um, but building again on Brannon and um, Jacob, because they have touched on many of the things I've talked about, but Going back to the question of um, how surmountable is this problem? I think our students at this point teaching it, I focus on value change. Not that I know that value change is going to take place, but teaching them ways in which we think how values are connected with um, human behaviors. So I start off by talking about um, core values, how those values, um, impact our beliefs and our attitudes, and then how those are converted into behaviors. Um, I maintain in all my classes that if human behavior can be adapted, we can certainly find ways collectively um, to think about um, the issue that we, that we face with, the issue of the earth and the survival of the earth. Um, so as a political scientist, it's easier for me, I think, to focus on politics and economics, because those are my two um, areas of strength within across the global community. Um, but I use models like um, a mock United Nations program, where I allow students to research the issues that we're confronting, and then present those issues from their own perspectives. So I allow them to adopt a country. Um, I think, as I said before, um, and they can choose any country in the world that they don't know anything about, do the research based on all the political, economic, and so forth theories confronted in the classroom, and then come up with their own models of how can we make this question a question um, 
in terms of the equity of it, gender, economic security, um, you know, um, what's the, uh, the third one is a third one that I always um, focus on, um, environmental justice, because we do have a serious issue with how can we make the world environmentally just so that everybody benefits from climate action in a collective kind of way. And presented as if they're presenting it to the United Nations and other countries in the world. And they say, here is our plan. How can we, um, what can we do to help your country improve? Or what can you do to help our country improve? Because once we think of it as a collective action where all nations need to come together, then it is important for them to think about what can each country bring? So it's mostly a place-based kind of conversation. What do we have here? What can we share with those there, et cetera? Because at the base of all of this uh, idea for equity is collaboration. So for-profits, non-profits, community organizations, everything need to get together and talk about innovations, adaptations that can be made. Um, the US State Department recently introduced a program for women. Um, uh, um, Aubrey Paris um, leads this discussion on innovative ideas coming from communities and she calls it the innovation station. I have been really transformed by some of the things that people are doing in different parts of the world, especially perhaps on the Gulf Coast where my interest primarily lies right now, but that um, information um, allows them to, to um, allows us to hear what others are doing and then to think, well, this can be done too. Bringing those kinds of programs to the classroom, inviting experts as, the, as we, all others have agreed. Um, in fact, um, Xavier's core curriculum change has made it possible through the XCORE um, courses, and I, I can't spend time explaining what those are like, but anyone can teach courses within this XCORE that can bring together um, climate change issues, um, justice issues in a broader context where all students on campus gain access to that information. Um, because for me, teaching cannot be just what we do in our classrooms, in our disciplines. It's got to be, as Jacob said, interdisciplinary, intersectional, you know, a way for everybody to share um, the ideas and move forward because that's the only way we can see any change coming around. It is the human mind, it's the idea of humanity and what humanity really means, what an ecosystem is and how that ecosystem can be made to work is a collective action process. And that's what I try to focus on with research service learning or going out there and collecting data within the community quantitatively, qualitatively or what have you. It is about connecting the social, the cultural, the political, the economic, and all of that to make those changes, make teaching and understanding what justice is. Plus, the other thing is that my students mostly want to go into the study of law. So what can you as a lawyer um, change? What can you bring to the table? How can you change the discussion? How can you talk about equity in the communities that have been underserved? How can you envisage change within that such communities. But I'd love to hear questions as well. So I'm going to stop there and wait for you back to continue. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. And I uh, love that holistic uh, appreciation of the interconnection of all these different uh, things, to, despite the disciplinary silos that we often hear so much about. So I uh, wanted to take a moment just to pause just to pause and see if there are some questions from our audience. Actually, I do see some coming in in the chat. I wanted to encourage anybody who would like to uh, speak uh, to, you can use the reaction feature. You can press the reaction button and raise your hand, or you can just turn on your camera, I guess, and, and raise your actual hand. Uh, uh, but if we don't have anybody uh, queuing up for that, I'm going to go ahead and read a question or two from I'll, I'll the chat. I'll read mine, Bart. I'll read mine. Fantastic. It's Dr. Elizabeth Hammer. Thanks, everybody. Elizabeth Yostin. I'm grateful for you all being here today. I was just wondering, because I've heard like different kind of approaches, and I just wonder, pedagogically, what have you found to be the most effective for long-term student learning and then long-term student action? 
right? Ultimately, engagement and action. Is it better to focus on one topic like flooding or more broad like equity, right? These are, is it better to be specific or more broad, you think, for long-term student action? And I didn't uh, really think through how we're going to reply. Who wants to uh, field that question? I see Brandon's hand up. Yeah, I taught a class on degrowth, and um, that's a really broad topic. Um, and I knew I wanted to also bring in comparative ideas from the global south. And so what I did is I, I chose a, a textbook. It's phenomenal by Elizabeth Stewart on climate change and, and degrowth, um, which does a lot of the things I'd like to talk about with my students, but focusing in on climate change rather than what I usually do is broad, because it's huge, it's much bigger than climate change. Um, and that worked really pretty well. And that, that led to larger discussions of, of um, beyond degrowth, like what does it mean to change your economic system or how does that lead to justice and what are the impacts on, on people around the world um, so, for example, what Jacob pointed out, you know, the lithium issue of lithium, um, the reality is not everybody can own a, a, an electric car. There's not enough lithium on the planet to do that. So what we really need to do is be thinking about public transit, um, designing cities in better ways so that people get around by foot, by bike, by public transportation, and not rely on cars, because um, otherwise the rich will have cars and well, I mean, we'll be right back to where we are today. Um, so um, so the, the resource constraints, and I think to answer your question in a nutshell, the resource constraints are very real, right? So, so you have to bluntly tell them not everything is possible, right? You can't, you can't say, oh, everybody on the planet will live in a you know, 5,000 square foot house with air conditioning and have three electric cars, not possible. It's just, it just can't be the, the level of environmental degradation associated that would, would not work. So we have to rethink how things can be. And once you start opening those possibilities, the students get, my students get really excited. Um, a lot of them have gone into urban planning. Um, they've gone into um, transport analysis and so on to try and begin to address these questions at, at the graduate school level. So. Thank you, Brandon. And, uh, oh, and uh, Jacob, do you have a, a response yeah, as well? I, yeah, so I, I, where I would answer it, but I just wanted to take a quick uh, just comment to just response to what Brandon just said. Just, I, I wasn't suggesting personal vehicles because you're absolutely right, that's not sustainable. But when I talked about electrifying, it's really the system, right? The transportation system. So we're talking buses. So all the things I agree with, you need to go public transport, but the public transport need to electrify. That's still gonna require lithium and nothing else. That's not, you're not gonna un undo that, right? So if you wanna electrify, have the next generation and pretty much every auto company are going electric, right? So it's really not about personal vehicle versus public transport. Public transport is a sustainable option, but to do have sustainable public transportation, you're still gonna require lithium and those kind of things. I just want to be very clear about that is that this is not a choice between vehicles versus buses, let's say, to do that. To answer my question, I think it was Elizabeth that can ask a question to do that. I think that to me, I would just ask sort of focus on breadth and depth of almost any issue that we're dealing with. So I think that it's starting point is not question is, should you go, you know, conceptual or broad or, or narrow? I think you could pretty much I would just encourage faculty members to pick something that they're really passionate about. That's something they're really excited to engage students about. So if you teach fashion, start with that. If you teach food systems, work on that. Energy, certainly that. So start with something that you have some kind of comparative knowledge about because just about any issue I can think of, it has a very strong kind of sustainability angle if you choose to use it. So just yesterday or, or today, really, uh, European Union decided that they're going to have a new regulation on terms of what kind of adapters we're gonna use for our, like plugins for our cores for our computers and cell phones. Now, you may think of that as like a pretty minor thing, but in terms of e-waste, in terms of, they're doing it in part because of sustainability reasons. Uh, 
but the pushback is going to be like you're going to hamper innovation, and that's a debate we could have. But I think that you can almost pick any issue that you're passionate about as a faculty member and bring others who equally share that passion and look at from any issue that you're interested in, but try to look at from a, as multiple perspective as, as kind of what Brendan and Pamela said already from global south to looking at multi-dimensional, multi-stakeholder kind of. And if you do that, I think almost any topic you choose will have a real impact on students. Um, just quickly to say to um, Elizabeth, I would go with equity, um, just to address your exact question, and then ease into that examples of flooding and why flooding is caused and what is inequitable about that and so forth. So I generally approach things from the broader perspective and then move into the specific, depending on the class I'm teaching, because all classes might not be interested in flooding. The other thing that is relevant to me here is that we have to meet students where they are. So it has to do with what they're studying and how we can make that study so engaging that we incorporate knowledge um, areas that might not relate on, on first sight to the subject that they're looking at. But we find ways to connect for them, to open the door for them to start thinking about other connections that might be there. Thank you so much. And I did want to be respectful of our time boundary. We have other, uh, some great questions in the chat and so forth, but we have uh, reached our time limit. And I wanted to thank our panelists. I've spoken to each one of you one-on-one uh, -on -one at length. And it's, uh, it, it does, uh, it makes me uh, feel really good today to have all three of you uh, talking to each other uh, and to our audience. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your time, your expertise and yourselves. It is, uh, Jacob uh, said uh, something I wanted to uh, come back to, which was the idea of that we, that we want faculty who listen to this to pick something. And, you know, it, in other words, to try to engage uh, these issues in their teaching. That's probably why you're here uh, for the live event. That's probably why you're, you're listening. But if this is something that you've been kind of, you know, on the periphery of uh, thinking about, it's been bothering you, but you haven't really taken the step of incorporating this into your teaching, uh, please make it a priority. We feel that, uh, and I hope you've, you've heard borne out by everything the panelists have said here, that there's really, uh, we are really at a critical time in the history of our society and our planet. So please uh, take the necessary steps to engage these issues in your teaching. And uh, thank you for listening today. Thank you for your attention. And thank you to the panelists for sharing your uh, perspectives with us. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, Brent. Pamela. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to this installment of Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. For more information, please visit our website at cat.zula.edu. That's C-A-T dot X-U-L-A. Until next time, keep on teaching, learning, and everything else.